Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Podcast 21 in our series on United States history. In podcast number 20, we started off with the explosive bombshell of asking whether the founding fathers dropped the ball, quote unquote, on ending slavery. Did they lose that opportunity? Were they too weak? What happened there? So I shed some light on that with, amongst other things, information from Joseph Ellis in his book, Founding Brothers. We then looked at the Constitution finally being accepted by the convention on September 17, 1787. Again, not everybody signed it, as we talked about. I then provided a quick overview of the Constitution, that it was the supreme law of the land and why that was important, that the idea of checks and balances as well. The Supreme the appointment of a Supreme Court justice, declarations of war, filling cabinet positions, etc. By and large, though, what a lot of people don't understand, and I, I say this from again uh, twenty plus years teaching at the college level, not including high school, is that at right at this time when the Constitution is confirmed by the convention, it does not become the law of the land. It's not going to. Until eventually every well, nine out of the 13 colonies now states ratifies that constitution, which of course will happen relatively quickly. However, even when they do and the constitution goes into effect, those four pieces of parchment, those four pages by itself do not provide Americans with the rights that we hold so dear. We know those as our Bill of Rights, but a lot of people are not aware that those Bill of Rights were not part of the initial Constitution that was accepted on September 17, 1787. It does not become part of the document even when it's ratified and goes into effect in 1789. The Bill of Rights will be written up, ironically enough, just a stone's throw away from Independence Hall. It'll be a building just to the right of it as you're walking out of the back door of Independence Hall, known as Congressional Hall. That's where those 10 famous items, amendments, will be added to the Constitution, known as our Bill of Rights, which will eventually be accepted on December 15th, 1791. Please know, though, that as I say, initially, there are no rights extended to Americans by the Constitution proper, even though it sets the foundation for us to have a Bill of Rights. But consider this, in terms of legal proceedings, let's not jump into anything deeply involved in legalese, etc. 
let's just look at something as simple as a traffic ticket. Just as a simple moving violation. I know it's not so simple when you see the dollar amount that's added when one receives a, a speeding ticket or driving through a red light or some other type of infraction that we might have caused when behind the wheel of our cars. But nevertheless, as we look at our legal system, it's amazing what the simple traffic ticket reveals about the complexity and the genius of what the Founding Fathers created and largely penned by America's eventual President of the United States, James Madison, our fourth president. If you think about it, the fact that there is a speed limit, let's just take again you or I or both of us are driving in either your or my car and we're going along, it's 35 miles an hour and I'll take the ticket on. I won't put you in the driver's seat here. It's 35 miles an hour, but I'm doing at least 70. Yeah, I'm doing at least 70 miles an hour. I'm flying, right? Notice that 435 members, or 438 members of the House and 100 members of the Senate, of the United States Senate, all of them could be standing along the side of the street watching me whiz down at more than double the speed limit. There is nothing that they can do any more than a commoner on either side of the street can do. They simply call 911 and report reckless driving. But they represent, they are the legislative branch, are they not? They write the laws. Exactly. Our founding fathers said, you, the legislative branch, you have the right to do that. But that's it. But wait a minute. People are going to violate that. Exactly. They then create a separate branch, the executive branch, that looks at that existing law and at that moment decides I'm breaking it by doing more than double the speed limit. Now, technically, yes, the executive branch, i.e. the president of the United States, the head of the executive branch, has the right to write laws, but not laws, bills of which the legislative branch has to approve, right? So it's not that he can do this alone. But please note, by and large, it's the executive branch that enforces those laws. So I get the speeding ticket when the police eventually catch up with me. And let's just take modern technology. They have a picture of my car. They have a snapshot where the digital readout is showing 73 miles an hour. And the speed limit clearly showed 35. And they have a picture of that, too. There's no defense for me. Or is there? That's why the Founding Fathers created that third branch, the judicial branch, to interpret the law. That's right, interpret it. Not to write it, not to enforce it, but to interpret it. In this particular case, this, because of the way the Founding Fathers designed the Constitution, the original four pieces of parchment, that gives me the opportunity to stand in front of a judge, or worse, a jury in some cases, that gives me the opportunity to stand in front of them and ask the question, dare to ask the question, am I necessarily guilty as charged? 
So I say to the judge, yes, I'm not denying that my car, that I was doing 73 miles an hour. So the judge has to turn around and say, well, based on this interpretation, guilty. But say, wait a minute, Your Honor. Here's pictures of my car. My podcast listener was in the passenger seat. And if you notice the pictures, Your Honor, that I took with my phone of the damage done in the driver's seat because of all the blood that my passenger, my podcast listener, was losing because of a severe laceration, a severe cut on his arm or her arm, bleeding all over the place. They were trying to hold it together, and I was rushing them to the hospital. That's the reason why, yes, it appears as though I was actually trying to lose the police by continuing to speed ahead, but I wasn't. But I knew if I stopped, I might lose my friend. I might lose my podcast listener. So I sped on to the hospital. And then immediately, once my friend went in, turned myself to the police and said, okay, let's talk this out. Here's the reason why. But the officer ignored that and said, I'm sorry, you're doing 73. Here's your ticket. You see, that's the genius of our Constitution. But also, that is the reason why court cases can take so long working their way through the system, amongst other reasons. Now, by the time we get to two years later, December 15th, 1791, the question then begs, in terms of the Constitution and its amendments, what rights do I have before December 15th? None. After that, though, we get what we call our Bill of Rights. Now, let's go ahead and flesh out these Bill of Rights with just a couple of quick ex uh, Supreme Court case examples. And these are examples that I use, uh, as well as add new ones as time marches on, that literally turn some of my classes truly into a stage show. I mean, it can really get their blood boiling when I simply lay out the facts without mentioning names and the way that they want to jump to the conclusion on one side until I reveal more information, which then makes them pause. There, it's an awesome class when I cover this aspect of it in my American history classes. But let's just take the example of a known <clears throat> drug peddler, somebody that had already been brought up on charges previously and was once again caught in the wrong place at the wrong time and possessed, possessed some drugs on the individual. So the police arrested this person, put him in the back of the squad car, and then turned around as they were driving to the police station and said, hey, Juan, it was the actual person's first name, Juan, what were you doing in this area again? You don't even live around here, Juan proceeded to answer. Well, who were you looking for? In other words, they had a conversation with Juan, of which the prosecutors then subpoenaed the police officers and said, you've got to stand on trial because I'm going to use that information against Juan. Juan didn't know that he didn't have to say anything. So he lost in the lower court. He lost in the appellate court. But his lawyers said, wait a minute, this is such a gross violation. We're going to appeal this to the United States Supreme Court. Now, let me stop it right here. And something that, again, makes my students sometimes catch their breath when they are constantly brought up and educated to believe that in our United States, we have three levels of courts of which they have a right to be heard at all three. That is patently not true. You have a right to your first level trial. You then can appeal 
at the appellate level. You then can appeal to the United States Supreme Court, but you do not have a right to have your case heard. Please be aware of that. In fact, the odds that the United States Supreme Court's going to take your case is between pretty much nil and nothing. When, as of last time that I checked the statistics, on average, the United States Supreme Court receives, literally receives, roughly 7,000 to 7,100 petitions to hear a case every year. They accept roughly 90 to 110. No, the odds are not good. So I then put to the class, we have a known drug peddler that didn't know that he could shut his mouth and not necessarily be considered breaking the law. But we also have a governor of a state that feels as though that he was unjustly tried and is asking for a moratorium or at least to have his case overturned or heard in front of the United States Supreme Court. Who do you think the United States Supreme Court is going to take? Which case would they take? The known drug peddler or the former governor? It's amazing, of course. It's sad, actually, that a majority of the students will say, well, of course, the governor is going to be heard. No. Governor George Ryan, I won't mention him by name, nor the state that he comes from, Illinois, he was, his case was not heard, was literally not even, I mean, was considered, but was not heard. But the known drug peddler was. Now, even though these are not the same time uh, period, my point is this. That is the major criteria that the United States Supreme Court takes when deciding which cases to hear. What significant portion of the population will be affected by a Supreme Court ruling? To put that into hard numbers, how many people in the United States are in the same position George Ryan was? Not many. To overturn George Ryan's conviction affects how many people? George Ryan. One. Oh, sure, Mrs. Ryan and the family would think it's great, as well as George himself. But bottom line, no. It's not going to affect, by and large, anybody outside of the Ryan family. But with one, how many people find themselves in the back of a squad car feeling compelled to answer the police officer's questions? How many people out there really don't know that I don't have to answer those questions? That's why one goes down in Supreme Court history and gives the rights that all of us have to have are required to be read to us by the arresting officer known as our Miranda rights. Who would think Miranda rights? What political genius, what legal scholar, what legal eagle had the ability to write those up and have that named after him or her? No, it's not named by an academic. It's not named after a politician or a lawyer. It's named after a known drug peddler. But because that was the name of the case, Miranda versus Arizona. 1966. Juan did not know that he didn't have to talk to the police. In fact, his own lawyers weren't even aware of that initially until Juan said, well, that's the last time that I answer the police officer's questions. And that's when the lawyer said, wait a minute, hold on, back up here. What were they asking you? You didn't know you didn't have to answer them? Uh, Juan, hello, you didn't understand the Fifth Amendment? The Fifth what? Yeah, Uh uh-oh. And that's what the Supreme Court considered. 
How many people don't know that? Which is why, again, upon arrest, we have to have our Miranda rights read to us, also known as Mirandized. Was my client properly Mirandized before they were put into the back of the squad car or taken away? Now, as much as our Miranda rights are a major and in common uh, thread in the fabric of our modern day society, please note that that Supreme Court decision by the nine justices, believe it or not, that only passed by a bare bones majority. That was a 5-4 decision, ladies and gentlemen. That means four justices still sided with the law on that case. They did not want to see Juan Miranda waltz away free based on his lack of knowledge of the Fifth Amendment that was added on to the United States Constitution. But one swing justice joined the other four to make Miranda rights part of American society. I also then at that point tell my students as well, pay attention when these Supreme Court rulings come out, especially the ones that come out in late June before the Supreme Court term ends on June 30th, and watch especially for the ones that are 5-4, they are by far the most contentious. 9-0, please, 1-8, that's a wash. 7-2, eh, sometimes that can spark some unrest. But the 6-3 and especially 5-4 decisions those are the ones that, again, can really roil people up. Remember that regardless of how the Supreme Court decides, there are going to be thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans that will feel as though the court let them down. It truly, the Supreme Court is truly, every one of those nine justices is really in a damned if you do, damned if you don't type position. But we need them because they are the last defenders of our American democracy exemplified by that Constitution of the United States. So that's with the uh, Miranda versus Arizona. Quickly, another one that also will get the uh, students' blood to boil. Now, this was a 7-1 decision. But the question was, can a criminal use a payphone to transfer illegal gambling winnings. Now, hold on. I'll stop right there, Chris, and I'll have students say, hold on, Professor. No, no, no. We can go on to the next one because that obviously is a no. Hello. Well, by itself, no. But you see this known gambler, known criminal, money launderer, he w knew the FBI tapped his phones and the FBI had a warrant for that. He was no dummy. So once he figured out that his betting series won, he then walked out of his house, supposedly waved to the two feds sitting in a car not far from him, walked down the street to a payphone, made a phone call, goes back in, waves to the officers or gave them the one finger salute, whatever, goes inside. And the officers said, yeah, <laughs> think we were born yesterday. And they go ahead back to the office and they come back and they go ahead and they put a tap on that public phone, in the phone booth. So it's from there that next round comes and goes. The criminal goes down to the street, gets into the payphone, transfer the winnings. That entire conversation was recorded by the FBI. Nailed them. Boom. 
there promptly arrest him. And he walks away scot-free. Now, wait a minute. He said, hold on, hold on. Unpack that. Rewind this tape. Hold on. What do you mean he walked away? That's what the justices asked. You see, the wiretap of the house, they had a warrant for that. No problem. So then the defenders of the criminal said, well, where's your wiretap for the public phone? Uh, hello, Mr. And Mrs. Lawyer, public phone, public, hello, i.e., we don't need one. And that's when the Supreme Court justice says, no, hold on a minute now. No, 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 not necessarily true. Now, mind you, I hate to say this, but there are oftentimes some young students in my classes that I actually have to explain what a phone booth is, and I have learned to just simply bring up a picture of this. Oh, those things. Yeah, we see those on movies. Yeah, good luck passing this class, pal. There were comments tonight when I was a kid, uh, well into my teenage years. But as the justices rightly asked, the lawyers defending the Constitution or the, the United States government and the right to arrest cats, hey, this is, again, Cats versus the United States, 1967. But wait a minute. Hold on. Or back it up a moment. Is the lawyers asked, or the lawyers were questioned by the just, one of the justices, when you go into a phone booth, what's the first thing you do? Well, I make my call. The justice says, no, 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 back up. Before you even take your, ready for this in those days, nickel out or a dime out to make the call, what do you do? Oh, oh gotcha, uh, Mr. Justice. Yeah, I, I just... I, I close the door. Well, why do you close the door? I, I close the door for private. And the justice smiled. Exactly. You shut the door with an expecting some semblance of privacy. Even though it is a public phone, there is still a semblance of privacy. Either we can protect our freedom of speech or we can't. Either we have that right, or we don't. Yes, Katz waltzed away in a 7-1 practically slam-dunk decision. Yes, it gets aggravating. Kick it up a notch, too. Can the FBI remove a gun that they're confident will implicate a massive part of a Chicago mob ring just a couple of years later? The FBI waited because they knew the hitman's modus operandi. He would always make his kill, take his gun, throw it out so it could never be used against him. And the FBI were smart enough to know, oh yeah, we weren't born yesterday. We're not going to go into your garbage without a search warrant. So of course they didn't. The criminal then pulls his garbage out to be emptied the following next hour when the garbage men are on the way. The criminal stayed with the garbage the whole time. The garbage truck pulls up, They go. the garbage men get out, they put their hands on the can, ready to dump it into the back of the truck. Right at that point, the FBI lead investigative agent charges out of the car and says, hold it right there with the plastic bag over his hand. He picks up the gun, looks at the criminal, says, see you in court. The criminal turns white, but his lawyer standing behind him says, not a problem. See you there. And the FBI begins to question their motives here. Wait a minute. Now. This was going into the garbage. And without going into the minutiae here of the case, that criminal walked free. You ready for this? And if this isn't going to aggravate you and you're driving, I suggest you pull over. Why did that criminal walk away? Because of the Fourth Amendment right of illegal search and seizure? Yes. Had the FBI waited for the garbage to be dumped 
into the truck, then removed the gun, they would have been in the right. But because the garbage was still in the criminal's possession on his property, it was illegal search and seizure. Either you can illegally search or you can't, but you can't have it both ways. And again, as I say, these cases, they really drive you know, my students bonkers sometimes when they realize you know, the minutia of these cases and who walks away and why. Case two of about the FBI trying to use thermal imaging to see if an individual is growing marijuana in their attics. It turns out that you need a search warrant for that as they found out the hard way. Say, so, wait a minute, what about when they're doing a stakeout? And the stakeout, the, the, the uh, watch ends at midnight. And as they're driving away, after light snow begins to fall, the FBI agent driving the car looks in the rearview mirror, slams on the brakes and does a quick U-turn, and then promptly goes into the house without a warrant, arrests the known drug peddlers inside, and takes them to, and takes them to jail. They never did walk away free. How did the FBI know? Because as the snow was falling, every house had a thin layer of snow on it on the roof, except for that house. There was a significant amount of heat coming from the attic that the snow melted upon contact. As the lawyer said, that is illegal search and seizure. As the Supreme Court of the United States said, no. Because that observation was made that anybody could have seen. It was not an illegal search and seizure. Let's bring it up to, that was in 2001. Let's bring it up to just a couple of years ago. Can a baker, a baker, you know, owns a bakery. Can they refuse to create a wedding cake when the baker knows that it is for a same-sex marriage? And according to the baker, two men getting married violates his constitutional rights and his religious rights, freedom of religion, freedom of expression. That one, of course, divided America as well. But it turned out that the baker does have the right to refuse to create something of his or her own. What the baker couldn't do was refuse those men from picking out something that was already made. That, the Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts said, the current uh, Chief Justice, no, that would be prejudice. You can't tell them to leave. You can't tell them that they can't buy something that's already made. But the baker does have the right, because it's his own creation, he does have the right to refuse it. Yes, it, it again, as I say, this gets a lot of people riled up. Can the police search your wallet or purse upon arrest? Yes. Can they search your cell phone? As of the June 25th, 2014 ruling? No. Why? Because the cell phone is so much more than it ever was before that contains pertinent uh, information. So with that, federalism becomes the ism of the day with the United States Constitution and its subsequent amendments. What I mean by the ism of the day is we are a federalist power. That is our governing doctrine. Federalism meaning power is divided 
between the federal, central government and the individual states, as we know initially 13, eventually going up to the 50 that we currently have, right? That's the powers not given to the federal government, to the central, automatically default back to the individual states. That's where you can still see the residue, and I mean that in a positive way, of the way that the founding fathers still felt the shadow of having a dictator, a tyrant of a king, tromping over their civil rights. That's the reason why, again, we still have that ism all the way through to the 21st century. Upon ratification of the document, please know, not everybody thought the Constitution was going to work or that it was better than the Articles of Confederation. But by February 1788, when nine out of the 13 states ratified, that is also, however, when we began to see the evolution of America's first two political parties. Yes, we talked about the Loyalists and the Rebels before during the American Revolution, but those weren't political parties. Those were parties, military parties, either supporting England or not. They didn't have any political jurisdiction. These do. They have, and that's what I mean by America's first two political parties. Federalists, as its name implies, it's going to lean towards the rights of the federal government. Translated to modern times, those would be today's Democrats. The anti-federalists would be the ones that were more comfortable with more state power rather than central or federal power. Translation to modern times, they would be today's Republicans. Well, what then really is the difference between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists then versus the Democrats and the Republicans today? You ready for this? Nothing. There's relatively no difference. Then why, in some cases, then, does it seem that they can never agree on things? If you really break down the political arguments, as we'll see when we begin the next podcast, they don't disagree, usually on the item of concern. What they disagree with is how we rectify it. Thanks for listening. See you at the next podcast.